So I'd like to believe, or I want to believe, that uh, I've always been in the past. I've always been fashionable with like the clothes that I wear. But the thing is, when I look back at some of my old pictures, like this, I'm wearing like a a brown turtleneck uh, that's striped. I have shorts uh, with sweatpants underneath, right? And I don't know why for sports shorts you would wear a belt, even though for sports shorts you don't wear that. And then the one hand that's holding this thing, I have a glove here, but no glove over here, right? And so when I look at this, it brings me back to reality, and I realize maybe I'm not very fashionable, you know? Because not only this outfit, but I also used to wear things like a members-only jacket. I used to wear Z Cavaricci pants. I used to, I always thought double-breasted suits really look cool, even though my friends were like, no, 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 that's not cool. I was like, it looks cool, man, you know? So I always thought dressing like this would be good. And people might say I was trendy ahead of time because you will look at the basketball players, they all wear tights now under their shorts, right? So I felt like I was ahead of my time. But when I look yeah, at pictures like this, I really wasn't. Because when you look at it, it's not very nice looking, it's not very fashionable. But I have to say, I think a lot of times when I dressed a certain way back then, it was suitable for that time. When I wore Cavaricis, everyone wore it. When I wore a member's jacket, a lot of people wore it, right? Double-breasted suit, it was cool at one time, right? Maybe some people still wear it, so it is cool, okay? It is still cool. And the reason I share this is because I know it's been a while since we looked at the book of Ephesians, but the first three chapters of Ephesians, it teaches us about God, about theology, about the work of the Holy Spirit, and who we are in Christ. So it's a lot of teaching about, you know, theology, right? But starting in chapter 4 to the end of the book, Paul's going to focus more on practical theology. Now that God has transformed us, now that we are in Christ, what does that look like? How should our lives look? And the thing that uh, the scriptures teach us, that being a Christian is having a new way of life. And if you remember last week's passage, the example I'm giving about clothes is not my own, but it's Paul's words. Like the old clothes, right? The old clothes, we need to put it off. Our old way of life, you put that off. And it may have seemed understandable the way you dressed back then, the way you acted when you were not a believer. It's okay because you are not a believer. But now that you're in Christ, what's the new clothes you're supposed to wear, right? He says, put, put off the old and put on the new self, the new clothes. What should that look like as Christians today? And what I'd like us to see this morning is by studying our text, there's three areas of life that Paul touches, at least three areas of life. And the three things I want to talk about is first, how should we talk with our mouth as Christians? What kind of words should we be uttering? Number two, how should we feel with our hearts? And number three, how should we act with our bodies? And so how is it that the gospel should affect our mouth, it should affect our heart, and it should affect our bodies? First, to live out our identities, we need to see how Scripture tells us it should affect our tongue and the way we talk. Now, I'm sure you've heard by now, because it's, I think it's been, over, it's been close to a year at least, since it broke news and there's about 50 
people, including these two famous Hollywood stars, Lori uh, Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, they were caught in this $25 million, $25 million college admission scam. And the scam was that they would pay and they would bribe coaches, phony test takers, uh, people who could doctor up uh, photographs, who would help their children or children of wealthy families, not only their children, but 50 other families, get into really elite schools like Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, UCLA, all these schools they got into and more. And the way the scheme worked was the parents, they would tell a lie that their child had some sort of learning disability and it would allow them to take tests at a different testing center that the scammers were uh, controlling. And so once they got there, they can change their test scores. And when I heard this, I'm not gonna lie, my initial thought when I heard this was, man, it serves them right, right? These darn rich people, they think they can do whatever they want. They're so messed up. Not only did they try to cheat, but by doing this, for every lie, for every fraud that they committed, it hurt some honest kid that couldn't get into the school because they took their spot. And so when I heard this, I was like, man, these guys are so messed up. But when I put on my counseling hat, and uh, I started to think in light of scripture, and if they came to me as a pastor thinking, oh, this is what happened, you know, this is my story, you know, I actually felt really bad. And the reason why I felt bad is, uh, I don't know, right? Maybe some of us do, but I surely don't know what it feels like to be a millionaire. I don't know what it feels like to be someone who's super famous, who's super successful. And so perhaps being so successful brings a lot of pressure to succeed at everything else, right? Raising your kids right and doing, making sure they get into great schools. Maybe there's a lot of anxieties. If their kids fail in school, everything I worked for, everything I built up, they're going to lose everything because they're not going to go to school, they're not going to get educated, and they're going to lose everything. Or maybe when you're really famous, it's that much more embarrassing if your kid seems like a failure, if your kid can't get into a good school. And I don't know, maybe some of these parents, they saw their kids stay up at night and they're working hard. And although paying bribes of $100,000, that's a lot of money. But for them, $100,000 is probably more like $100, right? And so if some kid told any parent in this room, your kid that's been studying and cramming and yet they can't get into these schools, you don't want their dreams crushed. Just pay $100, and they'll solve your, all of your problems. Isn't that tempting as any parent to say, all I got to do is pay $100? But, you know, as I am sharing about this, what I'm sharing is what they did was obviously wrong, and it was a sin. But my point is lying, controlling our tongue. It's a real temptation for all of us, is it not? And that's why when you look at the beginning of our passage, Paul says, we've already put off our old ways of lying. And we've put on new clothes, new way of life of telling the truth. So stop lying. 
and live out your identity as truth tellers. That's what Paul's saying. Now you might be thinking, I know lying is wrong already. I've, my parents taught me that since I was a kid. You don't have to tell me that. But if you look carefully, Paul says, speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so Paul's not just saying, in general, don't lie and speak the truth. But he's especially talking in the context of church. Members to members. And again, you might be thinking, why would anyone lie at church, right? And my response to that would be like, really? You don't think anyone would lie at church? But what Brian Chapel writes in his commentary, he says it in a nicer way. He says this, or he gives an example like this. Some may be tempted to create controversy in the church by speaking of what they do not know or twisting what they do know. Personal currency sometimes inflates in church communities through competing ideas, relationships, and reputations. The temptation always exists to further one's perceived importance by presenting others in a way that devalues them. We might say words that approximate what a preacher said without his nuance or qualifications in order to make him look unreasonable, unbiblical, or foolish, and ourselves, in contrast, more spiritual, biblical, and wise. To question the integrity or intelligence of church leaders, we may presume and suggest without full knowledge why they took certain actions, and by undermining them, elevate our own status or sense of importance. But to voice suspicions and to talk about what we do not know to be true contradicts biblical commands only to speak truth. And when I read this, I was like, so true, isn't it? Like things like this could happen in a church. And I, even though we might ask, why would anyone lie in church when pressures come, right, to save face, to gain social capital, It's tempting, isn't it? And it's very easy to lie instead of telling the truth. In addition, when you look at our passage, not only does Paul say, how should we speak? Not only to tell the truth, you jump all the way down to verse 29. Paul says, remember, we've put off. We put off the old clothes, the old way of talking in corrupt ways. Instead, we've put on the new way of building each other up, of encouraging each other. And so when Paul says we put off our corrupt ways, what does that mean? Does that mean just talking in evil and dishonest ways? Probably. That's a part of of defining what corrupt means. But when I studied this during the week, I think there's something a little bit more specific Paul's trying to get at. And when you look at this in the Greek, the word for corrupt, it has this connotation where um, it's almost like leaving food out and all day for weeks, for months. What would happen to a cup of milk? What would happen to the food? It would rot. It would deteriorate. It would break down, right? And so what Paul is saying is what he's warning us is watch out for hurtful words that break down people. But instead, remember, you've put on new clothes that build each other up. Don't talk in ways that break down people, but talk in ways that build each other up. And this is really important. The first point Paul is making is really important because we think many times lying and talking in corrupt ways, it's not as bad. 
It's not as bad as killing someone or robbing a bank, right? But the thing we need to see is how destructive words and sinning with our mouth can be versus really using it to bless people, to encourage people. And one example that Chapel always also puts is to illustrate this point is imagine a body that lies to each other. Imagine my eyes lie to my hands that touching this microphone that even though it was flaming hot and it lied to my hand that it wasn't hot and I would touch it, would it not hurt me? Would it not hurt your own body? In the same way, there's no way our church, the body of Christ, can function if members are constantly lying and constantly tearing down each other. But Grace Point, if we would only be a church that uses our words to build each other up, to tell the truth, even when the pressure is on, if we could cultivate relationships of trust at our church, Paul is telling us this is the recipe for a godly church. This is how we're supposed to live our lives out as believers, telling the truth. The second thing we need to also see in terms of living our lives out, Paul touches not only on the words we say with our mouths, but how should uh, our emotions affect our heart? And specifically, the text talks about the emotion of anger. And I think it's funny because anger is an odd emotion, isn't it not? Because if you think about anger, I remember when I was entering ministry, people warned me, be careful when you get angry or upset in public. They would warn me that. Because if you get angry in public, it's going to stumble people, right? And they're going to think you're so immature. Why are you acting like that? Why are you so angry? And even though people would warn me that, of course, I have to admit, I failed many times. I would get angry in, in public. Before I got married to Tay, there are couples we would see fight all the time. And I would be like, I never want to be like that couple that is angry and fighting in public. I don't want to be like that. And so I remember older people would always say, you know what, the secret is, don't go to bed late. Don't go to bed angry. Always make up, right? I don't know if old people talk like that, but <laughs> that's the wisdom that they would always share. Always make up before you sleep, you know? And I remember trying this when we were dating before we got married and I'd be on the phone and I was like falling asleep because it's so late and I'm so tired. And of course I would fail in this way as well. But you know, as I was learning about anger over the years and as I was studying our passage, first of all, let me say, it's not immature. It's not wrong. It's not a sin to be angry. In fact, I would say at times it's more messed up if anyone makes you feel bad for being angry over legitimate things, right? For example, to get angry when something is unfair, something is unjust, when someone is being cruel, when someone is evil, when someone is doing something wrong, it is perfectly fine to be angry. And I would go as far as to say it's a biblical, it's a godly response. Because if you look in the Bible, there are countless number of passages when God gets angry, when Jesus gets angry, 
when his people are mistreated or people start turning to idols instead of turning to God, God gets angry. And so there's nothing wrong, there's nothing immature about getting angry. But the real question is how and what is the proper way to be angry? And that's what we need to see in our text. In our text, if you look here, it says, be angry, right? It says, be angry, but do not sin, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so the point here is actually not about making up before you go to sleep. Everyone reads it like that. It's not about saying you have to forgive each other before you sleep, otherwise you're not obeying the Bible. But the point is, it's okay to be angry. And I would say it's even okay to go to sleep angry sometimes. When something just happened to you, and a wound is fresh, or when a wound is new, it's okay to go sleep angry. Because when you read scriptures, do not let the sun go down on your anger, it's not meant to be read literally. Because if it was, it would be almost impossible to keep this command. Who doesn't sometimes go to sleep angry? The point is the length of time. The point is focusing on don't let it be prolonged anger. The point is don't hold grudges. Whenever it's a, being angry is okay, but prolonged anger, that's no good. That's not right. And you might be asking, why though? Why is it okay to be angry, but not angry for a long time? And the reason why is because prolonged anger is no longer righteous anger. But what Paul tells us at the very end of our passage, you know what prolonged anger is? Prolonged anger is bitterness. It's our personal, unrighteous, vengeful anger. Prolonged anger is nothing but clamor. It's nothing but complaining and loud noise. Prolonged anger is slander. It's lies in order to hurt someone. It's malice, trying to uh, do something out of evil intent. That's what prolonged anger brings about. And this is really important, friends, for us to see, because just as we saw, relationships of trust is what makes a godly church and how we're supposed to live our lives out. In the same way, if we want to be a healthy church with healthy relationships, Paul's saying we've taken off the clothes of bitterness, of grudges. We've already taken that off because that leads to nothing but destruction, deteriorating. But instead, we've put on what at the end, he says? We've put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. That's the type of clothes we are wearing. That's who we are. And that's how we're supposed to live out our identities as believers. People who have been shown grace, people who have tasted how sweet that grace is, and because of that, we can't help but show grace to others. This is who we are. This is who, who we were made to be, to people who show grace and that show forgiveness. The last thing I want us to look at in terms of Paul saying, okay, you look at our passage, it's not only talking about our mouth, our heart, but now living out and acting out with our physical bodies. I don't know if you know this, but you know the largest lottery jackpot ever, largest ever, $1.5 billion 
Isn't that crazy? Billion with a B, that you can win a billion dollars in lottery money. That's so nuts. And I remember when I was in college, me and my knucklehead friends, it was like the highest at that point was like, it hit 300 million. We're like, <gasps> 300 million, it never went that high before. We gotta play, we gotta play. You know, in college, we didn't have that much money. We had like around $20 each. We went out that night blew all our money because we're like, yeah, we'll spend $100, but we're going to win $300 million, right? Why wouldn't you do that? So we go home with our tickets, like hugging him. We're like, what are you going to do if you win? Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. What are you going to do? You know, we're like dreaming. We're talking about it. We watch the TV. The balls come up. Not even one ball I think we hit out of all the numbers. It was so sad. Not even close to winning. And to this day, you know, whenever the lotto gets big, I have to confess, I start to think, I start to dream, it would be so nice if I hit the lotto, you know? If I hit the lotto, my wife wouldn't have to work. If I hit the lotto, we would not be worshiping in this room. (laughs) We'd have nice air conditioning in the summer. If we hit the lotto, I don't have to worry about my kids' college fun. It would be so nice if I didn't have to work and just hit the lotto. And yet, when I fix my eyes back on God, I realize, in a sense, what a curse it can be to win the lotto. Instead of dreaming about God's kingdom, I would probably be left dreaming about my own. Instead of working, many of us would probably be tempted tempted to waste our time and do things with God's time that we shouldn't be doing. And I share this because it's really funny. Out of all the things Paul tells us to do with our mouth, he tells us not to lie. Out of all the things that be concerned with our hearts, he tells us do not be angry. Out of all the things to do with our body, he says do not steal. And when verse 28 he says do not steal any longer, even the way he puts it, don't steal anymore. He's almost begging us to stop stealing right now. And when Paul writes that, and I read that for the first time, or when I was studying it, I was like, why would Paul say that? What in the world is Paul talking about? I don't think I've stole anything since I stole like G.I. Joe's when I was in fifth grade or something like that. Why are you telling me to stop stealing? And when I was studying our text, you know what I came to realize? We steal all the time. We're just a lot more tricky about hiding it. These days, it's easy to illegally download music, photos, and videos, isn't it? These days, it's easy to steal a coworker's idea and pass it off as our own. These days, it's easy to overcharge people. It's business, right? They're willing to pay. Even though it's not right to overcharge people, we do it. It's easy to cheat on our taxes. It's easy to go to work on company time, but do our own personal stuff, right? It's easy not to want to work and to dream about the lotto. Because maybe some of us also We're settling. We don't care about, not only, sometimes we don't want to be millionaires. We'll be okay with this small job that God gave us. Because in the light of being holy, right, 
We're okay with living a simple life. But you know why? What scripture tells us? It says, do not steal, but not only do not steal, but what does it say? Put off stealing, but put on what? Honest work. It says work. Why does it tell us to work? And the reason why is when we don't work, when we don't use the full God-given potential that God gives us, we're actually stealing from God all the potential he built us to be. And we say, I don't have to be that great. I don't have to make that much money. I don't have to do that. I'm okay with this simple, easy, comfortable life. In a sense, in one way, that can be stealing. You're stealing God's worship, God's glory, God's honor that we can be bringing him with what he has equipped us with. And so a lot of times when you look in scripture, when Paul tells us, put off stealing but put on working, Paul's telling us, forget the world's dreams of winning the lottery and not working. That's an unbiblical idea. But work diligently. Work hard. And we work hard because, number one, we're working for God. Go all the way back to Genesis, and it tells us God made us to work. And number two, this blew my mind, and look at the text yourself. But when you look at this text, it tells us not only to work for God, but you know why we work hard? Not to accumulate wealth for ourselves, but we work hard because not only for ourselves, but we work hard to give to other people who's in need. Give to other people. That's why we work hard. And when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, mind blown. But at the same time, I'm like, Paul, I don't even want to work for myself. Why are you telling me to work for other people? And the answer is, if you understand the gospel, you would work for other people. You know, before coming to Jesus, you know what kind of clothes that we all wore before coming to Jesus? The type of clothes we all wore were probably black clothes, black hoodies and a black mask and black gloves because we were all thieves. Before Jesus, all we wanted to do is take from people like robbers. We want to take and take. And living that kind of life, you know what the Bible tells us? Even though we were robbers, the Bible tells us Jesus responded by coming down from heaven to earth. And the reason why he came down was to work. Jesus came to work, not for his own kingdom, not to become the richest man in the world. Jesus came down to work, to earn and to give us salvation that we can never earn on our own. And the best part of this passage is not that Jesus comes down and gives us a salvation and that's it, but you know what the Bible tells us is that Jesus takes off our black hoodies, takes off our masks, takes off our gloves, and he covers us with his blood, with his righteousness, making us no longer thieves that want to take no longer people who are angry, no longer people who are liars and stealers, but now we are lovers. We are forgivers, and we are givers, right? No longer want to take, but now we want to give. That's the difference that the gospel makes. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, you know what all of this means for us. This is a tough passage, and you might be thinking, Pastor Tom, how can I not lie 
How can I not, uh, how can I forgive people when they did me so dirty? How could I give to people when I have barely enough for myself? But if this is what you're thinking, you've missed the whole point. This is not a laundry list of things that you need to do as a Christian. What this is, Paul is telling us is, you've already taken off your old clothes and you've put on new clothes. If you're a Christian here this morning, the moment you became a believer, something special happened where your old self was removed and your new self was added. Your nature changes. And so what Paul is telling us is, to become a Christian, I have to do this, this, and this. He's not saying that. But what Paul is saying, because you're already a Christian, these are the things you do. This is the natural outflow. You see the difference? You don't do these things to become a Christian, but because you are a Christian, you do these things. Because this is the clothes you're wearing. Live it out. Live out your identity. If you're not a believer, you might be thinking something similar. How can I go to God? I can never go to God. I can never be a part of his church because I have anger issues. I lie all the time. I don't want to give to anyone except myself. I want to steal everything for myself. If this is you, this is exactly why you need Jesus. Because it's Jesus who welcomes liars and cheaters and stealers. And he says, you know what? Come to me and you can be a part of my family. Would you go to Jesus? Because what he's saying to you this morning, if you're not a believer, Jesus is saying, friend, take off your rags, take off your filthy clothes and give them to me. And instead, take my robe of righteousness. And you can finally begin to live out the life you were meant to. This is the good news for us this morning, friends.